Well, as I said earlier in our verse-by-verse, book-by-book study, or chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Joshua, we're in a section which essentially reads like um, an inheritance or a will plus a, um, an assessor's office that gives boundaries of, of uh, different lands, all right? So um, as it turns out, if you remember, uh, Moses, he uh, led the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. They wandered in the promised land, uh, or they wandered to head to the promised land. They eventually end up there. And the 12 tribes that made up the Israelite people uh, were led by Joshua to conquer all of the, the, the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Amorites, pagan nations that did horrible, wicked things like offer their children up for sacrifice in the fires of their idols, um, who did uh, terrible acts of wickedness and violence. God said they, must, they had their chance. Now the judgment is coming. You are the hand of my judgment. The Israelites went through the whole promised land, and they were supposed to drive out all of these uh, pagan Canaanite nations. Um, and as we saw many, many times going through this, they failed to do that, which will come up later as a problem. But we are in the portion of now Joshua where all of the 12 tribes are getting their different portions in the land. So as you would read it, and I, I, I told you before, I probably won't read every single verse, which would be more typical for us. Uh, but because it's mainly made up of place names and city names, uh, unless there's something significant, I probably won't read through it. I would encourage you to, to try and read through it or get a good audio Bible so you can listen to someone else struggling to pronounce all these names. Uh, but understand these are mostly the names of these Canaanite, these pagan cities that they were to go and occupy. So you don't really have borders necessarily like, um, you know, if you were to describe the borders of, uh, of the United States, um, you'd say, well, there's a river that kind of defines this one. And of course, it's just like a straight line across between us and Canada. It, it, it's not quite that. You get, you get the names of cities because they were supposed to go and occupy these cities. So that's what you're reading when you read Joshua 19 and you see city names like, you know, Beersheba or Hetzor, Shual, so on and so forth. So we've gone through almost all of the tribes of Israel and their allotments in the land. We've used it as an opportunity to get to know these tribes a little bit. And we are finally at uh, the last two here in Joshua 19, the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Dan. Now, we already talked a little bit of Na- about Naphtali when we talked about the tribe of Zebulun because they were both uh, on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. So if you took, take your... Um, Hand out, flip it on the back. There's a handy-dandy map. And you see that area of Zebulun, uh, and you see the area of Naphtali. And Naphtali especially looks like it just right around that western coast of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is the one that Jesus was crossing, and there was a great big storm. And he said, you know, hush, be still, and the waters um, were still. Jesus grew up in this area of Zebulun and Naphtali. So in a way, this is his hometown. We made a reference last time to Isaiah chapter 9, that famous passage talking about how the government will be upon his shoulder and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and so on. Well, that begins with a prophecy toward Naphtali and Zebulun. 
Other than that, though, you don't have a whole lot more mention of Naphtali. And as we did before, let's go back to the book of Genesis and let's hear the blessing that Jacob, the father of the original 12 brothers, who were the, the, the ones for whom the tribes are named, let's see the blessing that he gave on the tribe of Naphtali. And, uh, and uh, you're gonna, maybe you can help me out with this. <laughs> Genesis 49, 21. Jacob, on his deathbed, his 12 sons, and actually his 12 sons and two grandkids are, are, are standing before him to get a blessing from him. This is a very typical Middle, Middle Eastern thing to do. And his sons has passed before him, and he'll lay his hands on him, and he will say a blessing on them. And here's what he says to Naphtali in verse 21. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. The end. <laughs> now, <laughs> so there's a little bit of confusion about this. First of all, is being a doe let loose a good thing or a bad thing? Secondly, there's a little bit of a translational option that it could be either that Naphtali bears beautiful fawns, which would make sense if it's a doe. They would have, you know, little um, cute little deer. Um, but it's a little bit peculiar in that the bears there, the verb, is, uh, has like a, a, a male as the pronoun. In other words, it would actually read, he bears beautiful fawns. That seems kind of awkward, right? Because it's usually a female that, that bears uh, the children, um, so there is a, another take on this that could be translated um, that he speaks beautiful words as opposed to he bears beautiful fawns. Well, which one is it and what is the meaning? It's hard to say because this doesn't seem to necessarily correlate to much of anything that happens in their future history. Whereas when we've looked at the other tribes, We've seen, ah, there's, there's something there kind of prophetically significant. There's something there that kind of points to their future and what happens when they get in the promised land or some future time. But this seems a little bit curious. I think generally it seems positive that you, you picture this doe just bounding and leaping through a meadow or something, and either this doe is saying beautiful things or having beautiful children. Well, both of those are very good. Um, as it happens, Moses also gives a blessing before he dies. He also blesses not all the tribes, interestingly, uh, but he does bless some of the tribes and does bless the tribe of Naphtali. And this is what he says there in Deuteronomy 33, verse 23. Deuteronomy 33, verse 23. And he says, And of Naphtali he said, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full of the blessing of Yahweh, Possess the lake and the south. So what that seems to at least indicate is that they were a blessed tribe and that they would indeed have this land as an inheritance around the lake or the Sea of Galilee, which is there. Again, you can look. It's a very significant lake in, uh, in Israel, um, second to the Dead Sea, which is to the south, and they're connected by the Jordan River. So that's, that defines... That's one of the things that defines the geography of the promised land is the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. It kind of splits things in half. So that seems much more 
clearly positive. Now, here's the thing. How did the future of Naphtali uh, pan out? So here they are. They have very good land because it's right around the sea. You got commerce that happens around there. You obviously have fishing. It ended up being a pretty decent or significant uh, area at the time of Jesus. However, like the other tribes, Naphtali did not drive out all the inhabitants of the land. You can look at Judges 133. And Naphtali, frankly, doesn't figure too heavily into the history of Israel at all. They're barely mentioned any other places besides Judges and then a, a few, uh, like one or two times in, uh, in Kings. They show up for a few battles, basically, like at, on the right side, right? So they show up in a few battles on the right side, but their ultimate end, like all the other 10 tribes besides Benjamin and Judah in the south, the 10 other tribes of Israel, they were wicked. They separated from the godly tribes in the south and the kingdom of David. They formed their own little kingdom, those 10 tribes, and they, they acted wickedly. And they only ever had wicked kings in charge of them. And so around 720 B.C., God sent the Assyrians, who are a wicked, terrible empire, to come and conquer them, wipe them out, and scatter them to the ends of the earth as it still is to this day. So that happened 2,700 years ago. They are still, these 10 tribes of Israel, are still scattered throughout the world even now. That is their ultimate fate. So from Naphtali, you... You know, maybe if you take a kind of big picture view, they had a very promising start because there's a lot of blessing in the blessing from Jacob, and there's even a blessing from Moses on them. It seems like they have favor. It seems like they got a good thing going, but just like everyone else, it seems like in the Old Testament, they fall into temptation, they fall away from the Lord, and ultimately they become judged. Now, is there any good news in this? Well, we're going to get to it next time when I kind of round out our discussion of all the tribes. But God does promise a day when he is going to gather the Israelites together from wherever they are. And he is going to save them. He's going to give them the grace they need to truly trust and believe in him. So there is still hope, even though they started well, they seemed to do very poorly, disappear but God, in his mind, in his plan, he does still have a purpose for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel. He will restore them according to his promise. But for now, 20, what year is it? 2022, um, the tribe of Naphtali, we would not be able to identify them even now, which is a sad thing uh, to say. All right, next is Dan. This is the seventh lot that came out for the tribe of the people of Dan. And uh, you notice on your map, they got a little itty-bitty territory. Um, what is their blessing, or do they get a blessing? They got two territories. Oh, oh, that's true, like a very northern portion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, that's where you get an expression that you see in the, in the, in the Bible from Dan to Beersheba. It means from the north, northernmost point to the southernmost point. But they're a pretty small tribe. Um, they're not very big, and their territory is not uh, very big either. In fact, we're going we're gonna to talk about it in just a second. Uh, but Genesis 49, going back again to Jacob there with his 12 sons passing before him, and here comes Dan. Dan shall judge his people. 
as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh. This one again is a little bit uh, of a confusing one. Not that, not that all of them don't have something maybe about them weird, but to be honest, to me, the, the strangest ones are um, <laughs> Naphtali and, uh, and Dan. Now, the name Dan means to judge or to vindicate. So there's a little bit of a wordplay that, Dan, you're the, you're the judgy tribe, and you are going to judge uh, as one of the tribes of Israel. We'll see that this is something that actually gets fulfilled because one of the tribe of Dan is going to be a very famous judge in the times of Judges. And you probably know him, Samson. Samson was a judge from the tribe of Dan. What does this mean here that he's going to be a serpent, a viper by the path, and so on? Is that a, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Now, typically you see serpent language in the Bible. It's usually kind of bad. It has to do with Genesis 3, where you had a serpent, of course, tempt Adam and Eve. It was Satan, but he took the form of some kind of serpentine being. Um, and so this might make you think immediately that this is something negative, um, but it could be that this is just talking about how something small can actually cause something large to, to fall over. So even though Dan, being a smaller tribe, that it can still have a big impact. And so if you look at, say, Samson, that would be sort of a fulfillment of that. So you got this little, you know, smaller tribe, but you have Samson come out of it, and he ends up being a very, you know, iconically strong man. He, he um, ends up defeating the Philistines. Um, he was too proud and too arrogant, and he brought about his own destruction as well. But um, there's you know, that, that might be the take on it. But it is a little bit confusing as far as, was well, this a good thing or a bad thing? Because Jacob ends with, I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh. He doesn't say that about any of the other kids in, in blessing them. So it's kind of a weird thing, like, why Dan? Why does he have this kind of a, a phrase attached, I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh? Uh, how is it that that Dan is Dan either bringing about a situation that I need salvation from? So Dan screwed things up. So God, you're going to have to save me from the consequences of what Dan did. Or is this saying that through Dan, some kind of salvation will come? So, you know, you can find commentators that go both ways. If you think this is sort of fulfilled in Samson, then you see that Samson did, in a sense, ultimately bring salvation to the Jewish people by destroying the Philistines when he, uh, when he broke the um, supporting pillars when he was in the house of all the Philistine royalty. So killed everyone, including himself. That was one way to bring salvation. Um, could be talking about that, or it could simply be talking about how Dan would be in this position of, of judge and being judged, just like all the other 10 tribes, just like all of Israel uh, was in a position of being judged by God that Dan, like all the others, despite being the judge tribe, would have to wait for the salvation of God, just like all of Israel is still even now waiting for the salvation from God. So there's a couple different ways that you can uh, go out um, or go about that. Now, it is interesting that the book of Judges does talk a little bit more about Dan compared to the other tribes. Um, turn to Judges, which is right after Joshua, and it's really just a continuation of the story. 
immediately after Joshua's death. In Judges chapter 1, verse 34 and 35. This whole section there from 27 on to the end of the chapter is really about how the tribes failed to kick out all of the Canaanites, as I said before. Um, but look what happened with Dan, verse 34 and 35. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Aijalon, and in Shaalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. In other words, the Amorites pushed back hard enough on Dan that they that they could not occupy all of the territory that was their inheritance, but the, the Danites were uh, strong enough to at least force the Amorites into slave labor, you could say. So, go to now Judges 18. Now, this isn't strictly chronological. So, Judges 17 and 18, 19, they, they kind of give little um, vignettes that seem to fill out the stories that we see in the book of Judges. And in Judges 17, you're introduced to a gentleman by the name of Micah. Um, He has like his own uh, pocket priest, um, uh, this Levite. And uh, (laughs) he he just acts as basically a personal priest to Micah. It's kind of a weird situation, okay? So Matthew or Judges 18 starts, in those days there's no king in Israel, And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So uh, basically, the way it pans out is the people of Dan send out five spies. It's kind of like when uh, Moses sent out the 12 spies to look at the promised land. So Dan does this little mini spy operation. All right, you go, you guys check out the land, see what's going on there. We need to know if we can take them on or not. So as it ends up turning out, um, they find Micah, they find uh, the Levite, um, and uh, they, they essentially the town that they're in is called um, Laish, or in Joshua 19, it's called Leshem. And they basically just kill everybody in that town um, and uh, burn everything down, and then... <laughs> They name it Dan, after Dan, and um, they end up, verse 30, the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. In other words, they were a bunch of Amorites who did pagan worship, idol worship. Well, they set up the carved images for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So the Danites ended up taking the pagan practices of the Amorites as their own. They set up like their own little cultish priesthood. And it was Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, who was like the the pocket priest there and led this little cult. So the Danites, they were not doing things the right way. They were obviously obviously in their negligence to 
take out all the Amorites. They let the Amorites take them over spiritually. Even though they wiped them all out, in a sense, they didn't because they still drank of the same uh, poison of idolatry and pagan worship. So uh, it's a sad story. Um, In a sense, it gets redeemed then by the story of Samson and um, his dealings and this judge being raised up. But it's, we, we've said this before as we've looked through the book of, of, of Joshua, just this idea that um, we're not, Christians don't have any mandate to go and take over a land, okay? Um, we're not to go storm like a, uh, a temple of, a Buddhist temple or shrine, you know, and knock down all their idols or anything like that. We're, we're, we're not. We're not called to do that, um, so it's very unlikely that you're going to be asked to go to a city and wipe everyone out or anything. But maybe a harder job is for us to not let the sins of the world kind of take us over spiritually, you know, because that's how, that's how Christians and churches get made ineffective when, is when we let, we, we think we've done such a great job of confronting all the ills and evils of the world, but all we've done is absorb them and let them run rampant in our churches and our hearts. And you can see that even now. And so many churches are very pragmatic. So many churches, they just find out what is the culture into right now. And we make this cheesier Christian version of it. And so we're trying to just make the world um, slightly more Christian-y in order for it to be an easier pill to swallow, but it ends up being a poison instead. And so we've said this before, but it's worth reiterating um, to be sure not to leave any place for sin, um, to be allowed a foot in the door in our hearts, because it can often lead to more and more sin. I'll say that's also why we ought to be here for each other as a community. I mean, a part of me looks at this, I'm an only child. So a part of me thinks if I had you know, 11 brothers, or if I had a lot of other siblings, like what kind of relationship would I want with them? Well, I would want one, I think, where we're doing things together, we're encouraging each other, we're trying to build things together. I have two little boys, <laughs> four kids total, but two little boys. And uh, if, if I thought they could get along for 10 minutes, that'd be fantastic. That'd be phenomenal. So maybe I'm being a little bit like naive here, but you would think, oh, the 12 brothers. And I know these are tribes, okay? It's not the, we're, we're many years past, hundreds and hundreds of years past the 12 initial brothers. But even when you read about them in the book of Genesis, you're like, these guys are going to be fighting all the time. They, they're already trying to kill, you know, one of their own, um, Joseph. So you, you see that. And, and sometimes they do look out for each other. And sometimes these tribes do look out for each other. But a part of me says, like, why didn't they try to work together? Why did they try to do everything on their own? Um, there are rare occasions, like I said, in the book of Judges, there are times when there's a call to arms and everyone does band together. But those times are sort of few and far between, even in the history of Israel, not just Judges. Well, I think one of the things we are to take away or, or look at from that is that as a church made up of people from all different kinds of backgrounds where really we don't even have blood uniting us, like all these tribes are related to each other, and yet we have the blood of Christ that unites us. We've been talking about it in Ephesians chapter 2 in our Sunday mornings together about how God has made one people from the two, that he has made peace 
between Jews and Gentiles, reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So there is a way for you know, Jews and Gentiles. There is a way you could say in a sense for the tribes to have gotten along with each other and even for these tribes in a sense to have gotten along with these pagan neighbors. Because you remember Rahab, she was one of the pagan neighbors, but she was brought in. How? How could that be done? How could there be that kind of peace? It's only through the grace of God. And as we know now through Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for our sins, that that blood is shed equally for Jews, for Gentiles, for those who are rich, those who are poor, those who are uh, famous, those who are not, those who are, you know, don't have any social media clout and those who are the greatest influencers. Jesus Christ's blood is, in a sense, very indiscriminate. It saves all kinds. This room is evidence of that. And so we have maybe not physical blood, like, you know, of being the same lineage together. We have the blood of Christ uniting us, though, something that is stronger than the blood of, of uh, Zebulun and Naphtali and Dan uniting them. So maybe we can do a better job looking out for each other. Maybe we see in the Old Testament a, a failure for Israel to maintain their wholeness. After all, they become two separate kingdoms shortly after the time uh, of Solomon and David. So maybe the church then is supposed to be... A, a better manifestation of the kind of unity and wholeness than we ever saw in ancient Israel because a stronger blood unites us, a stronger lineage. So that's just, again, as we're going through Joshua 19, just going through some of these uh, thoughts I had of going through it. We end Joshua 19 now with uh, the final inheritance, which is the inheritance for Joshua. Uh, and he essentially, he gets a, a little city to himself, a little territory. I'll read this part because it's short. Uh, Joshua 19:49. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among uh, them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of Yahweh, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath-Saram in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances that Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. And uh, that is supposed to be kind of a, a statement that finishes in a way all of the um, prophecies and promises of Deuteronomy, of, of Exodus, of Genesis, of the people, uh, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob coming into the land and dwelling it. So that's a significant statement that they were finally there. Now, whether they're going to be able to keep it was going to be another question, um, but here at least you are supposed to rejoice, heave a sigh. You're not going to have to read a bunch of names of places that you can't pronounce for like maybe a chapter, <laughs> and then we'll have a few more tough names. Uh, but uh, th this is, if you're a Jewish person, um, you, you, are to, you are to be thankful to the Lord for him keeping his promise, even despite their sinfulness. But <clears throat> their sinfulness will have a consequence. So any questions? That was a little bit shorter today, just covering those two tribes. Any questions about Joshua so far?
If you just jumped into this last one, you just really jumped in to like the very last thing about, about a lot of the tribes. I'm not really interesting. All the other tribes are very interesting. Naphtali and Dan, they're okay, but um, <laughs> there's definitely some uh, more interesting stories uh, with some of the other tribes. No questions. Clear as day. <laughs> if I gave you the map, you know, and took out the names, you'd be able to place where each tribe, you know, went, right? <laughs> right. You only need to know two. You just need to know Benjamin and Judah in the south by Jerusalem. All the ten are scattered everywhere else. That's all you need to really know. And you'll be able to understand, for the most part, the general um, idea of the, of the Old Testament um, in terms of the geography and the people and the places. So ten tribes, not Benjamin and Judah. They formed the northern kingdom later on when the kingdom, they have kind of a civil war, they separate. In the southern kingdom, Benjamin and Judah. Yes, sir, Ellen. Why is Caleb's name so big? Why is Caleb's name so big? So you can read it. I don't know. Some of the names are, some of the names are small. I think it's just to fit the space. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't make the map. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <coughs> Joshua and Caleb are, you know, iconic boy names. But how do you, how do you know that you're going to just have two? I mean, what if you have three? And you got to, you got to rename all of them to make sure, you know, fit a, a three name scenario. I'm just kidding. Any other comments or questions? All right, we're going to wrap a little early, which is fine by me, because we're going to have a baptism class. So uh, I'm going to pray. We'll set up the room for... Um, our uh, koinonia time. Those who are in, going to be in the baptism class, go ahead and get your food first so that we can, you guys can eat. And uh, we'll do the class again. We'll do that up front. And anyone who's interested can listen in on that if you want. If everyone wants to listen in, then I'll just have it in here. But otherwise, we'll do it up there. Okay, let me pray. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, so it'll be in the pews. So you'll, you'll, you can eat in the pews. I give you a pass to eat in the pews today. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, let me pray. We'll close.